0: Good morning, Hallows Church. It's good to see you today. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the elders of our church, uh, primarily up at the Edmonds Expression, but I'd love to come back down here and be with you in this way as we open our Bibles together. And this is actually, you may know, the, the last week of our sermon series, Journeying Through the book, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to pause after this week and step into a summer sermon series that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but for now, as we wrap up uh, this chapter in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 8, uh, why don't we read the passage and then we'll spend some time talking about it. Luke chapter 8 verses 26 to 39 says this, <clears throat> Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he, he being Jesus, got out of on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house but in the tombs, When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all of the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting in the boat, He returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him, but he sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. And so this is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God for that. Um, It's an interesting passage. We come to a passage like this, and uh, many are not quite sure what to make of it, right? It's a pretty bizarre scene. And in fact, there are a lot of scenes just like this one throughout the New Testament where you, where you find Jesus setting people free from the, from the demons that are controlling them. Many will say, and even some Christians will say, that passages like these can't be taken too seriously. They're obviously a product of that time and, and that place where they had a more simplistic and naive understanding of the world. After all, we've come a long way in 2,000 years, right? we understand many things now that they did not understand they didn't understand and could not explain the biology and physio- physiology of disease as we can they didn't understand human psychology and mental illness like like we do they clearly did not understand and could not explain many things that we now do understand and and can explain but while that is certainly true it does not follow from that friends that the bible is therefore mistaken or misguided when it comes when it comes to the reality of of evil, or when it comes to understanding the sources of the struggles that we face in this life. One of the reasons I say that is because of passages like Matthew chapter 4, verses 23-24, to listen to what this passage says. It says, Now Jesus began to go all, all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him All those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and it says he healed them, healed them all. And so people were bringing to Jesus those who were struggling with all these different conditions, sicknesses, diseases, pains, paralysis, as well as those being oppressed by demons, and it says he healed them all, all of them. And that word translated in your Bible as epileptic, it literally means moonstruck or, or lunatic. In fact, in the King James Version of the Bible, that's how that word is translated, as lunatic. And so that Greek word basically means someone characterized by insanity and irrational behavior, someone who was, who was mentally unstable or mentally ill. Now, what passages like this tell us is that the biblical writers, they were not ignorant on these matters. They they understood something about the difference between the the psychological from the physiological from the spiritual, right? In fact, they differentiate here and in other places too, the diseased from the demonic, from the mentally ill. And so even though the Bible was written at a time when they did not know all the things that we know now, the, the, the biblical understanding of the human heart and of the problem of evil and the presence of evil is far from simplistic and far from naive. In fact, I would submit that the opposite is true. I'd suggest that when it comes to the human experience and the human condition, the biblical worldview is one of the most complex, one of the most multidimensional, one of the most coherent and reasonable explanations that, that exists. No other worldview can account for All that we see around us and all that all that we sense within us like the biblical worldview does and here's why this is very important for us right now today in the city of seattle if you and i if we don't see the reality and the complexity of what the bible says about satan and sin and evil if we don't see that evil is not only out there but it's in here too if we don't see that it's not only individual but it's corporate and systemic it will deceive us and defeat us unnecessarily so in different areas of our lives just as it does in dramatic fashion with the man in this passage so three points I want to draw out of this passage I want to talk about the man first of all and then I want to talk about the master his new master and the miracle that goes down in this guy's life first let's consider this man Jesus and the disciples, they obviously arrive at the shore of this place called Gerasene. Now, this was a Gentile, a Gentile region, and as, as Jesus and the disciples step out of the boat, this man is there to greet him, right? To greet them. He was, he was their welcoming party, and that sounds pretty nice. But he was not the sort of welcoming party that probably felt all that welcoming. We're told this guy was naked. We're told he was demon-possessed. And to possess something means to own it, really. This man, it seems, he was being owned and mastered by spiritual powers that had worked their way into his life somehow. We're told that this man was powerful. Wow, amber alert. (laughs) Sorry. We're told that this man was powerful. He would snap any restraints that, that were placed upon him. And we're told in Mark's account of this Uh, Same story that this this man could often be found crying out and and cutting himself with stones It says in Mark chapter 5 verse 5 and so there you go. This is This is how Jesus and the disciples were greeted by this very troubled man. Welcome to garrison Now this I think would have been a tense moment. It would have been an intense moment who knows what this guy would have been capable of It also says this man did not stay in a house it doesn't say he did not have a house or that he did not have access to a house. It says he did not stay in a house, which kind of makes it sound like he, he could have stayed in a house, but he didn't. He stayed, he stayed in the tombs, it says. And these tombs, these were caves, really, caves that existed in these limestone cliffs along this shoreline in this part of the world, and they would have, they would have indeed been used for burying the dead back then, but they would have also been used as, as shelter for the most marginalized of society for the hopeless, for the helpless, and for the homeless. And so this guy, he was literally living uh, among the dead, but he was also living among the desperate and the destitute. And if this was this man's situation, it's clear he was not part of mainstream society at this point, right? He was withdrawn. He was was isolated. He was living really on on the margins of society. But we also see he wasn't always this way. It says in verse 27 it says he had been this way for a long time for a while but he wasn't always it wasn't always like like this something something happened In Mark's account it says nobody could get through to this guy anymore it says as if there was a time when you could get through to this guy when you could reason with him but but not anymore And we're not told really what started this guy down this path but it was something Somehow this evil had gained access to this man's life and over time it was It was was taking uh, more and more control from him and more and more control of him, really. And I think this should remind us, friends, that evil is patient in its its pursuit of people. I guarantee you this enemy is more patient than than you are. And so it's a long game in many cases, and we need to be diligent and, and not grow complacent in this battle. Evil rarely comes at you straight on. Usually it comes after you slowly and subtly, opportunistically, waiting for just the right opening. And this is indeed part of my story. I opened the the door just a crack at first, and this enemy very patiently worked their way in over the course of many years until that that door was wide open. It It was a door that I could not shut on my own, but Jesus could and Jesus did, just as we're going to see him do in this passage for this man. We don't know what set this guy off in the direction his life took, but we know that he wasn't always like this. It started somewhere, and there was a progression that ultimately led to this, to what we're seeing here in this passage. Another thing we also see here is the way that evil deceives this man and, and divides this man, really, how evil is, is divisive. This man had been divided in various ways. He had been divided from his friends. He had been divided from his family. He had been divided from society as a whole but what's most striking about this is the way in which evil the evil in this man man's life was was dividing him it was dividing his own identity and his own sense of self and his own understanding of his self in verse 30 Jesus says what is your name and he replied I am legion now we're going to come back to that in a bit but a legion is a very large number it's a military term that uh, refers to a very large army And what's interesting, if you follow this exchange in this passage and and you look at what this guy says and how he says it, you see at times that he's referring to himself with singular pronouns and other times he's referring to himself with plural pronouns. So in some cases he says me or I, in other cases he says we, in other cases he says them. Now I don't necessarily want to get into a debate about proper pronoun usage this morning, but there's a, a very real sense of confusion and chaos within this man. In fact, it's not at all clear as this conversation happens who was really doing the talking and and who was calling the shots, right? Because it seemed seemed that there was more than one voice that had something to say. Now, I do know this is a pretty extreme example to be sure, but friends, the truth of the matter is there are many voices vying for for our attention, right? And competing for our allegiance. Several years ago, a popular radio program aired an episode entitled the devil inside of me. And for this show, they asked various people if they ever felt like they were under the influence of an inner voice, an inner voice that wanted to put unwanted thoughts in in their heads or that sought to control them in one way or another. Now, according to the show's host, and I quote, it was like people had been waiting their whole lives for somebody to ask them this question. And there were some very interesting answers, too. One man said, I certainly know the voice that you're talking about. One woman said, it's totally out of control, I got this, it's got this life of its own and I can't tame it anymore, she said. Another woman said, I actually have a name for the voice, I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to buy cigarettes. Another man says, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, every part of my feelings. Another woman who had just got engaged said the voice had been saying to her, you'd better, you'd better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away because he's going to eventually find out the truth about you and who you really are, so you'd better distract him with a really thin body, she said. Now, At the end of the episode, the host asked one of the women, do you feel like the voice is winning? And her reply was, right now, yes, I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. Now, this was a radio program called This American Life, hosted by a professing atheist that aired on national public radio. And without wanting to or trying to, I'd suggest to you that this episode is affirming for us a surprisingly biblical and a surprisingly accurate way or view of some of the ways in which evil and sin seek to assault us and, and divide us in our individual lives. The battle is real, and the battleground is, is up here. Our minds are where these battles are being waged. And if we're going to be honest, you, you know the voice, right? You're, you're familiar with the voice. He deceives, he distorts, he divides, he, he lies and he lures, and then after he lies and, and lures you in, he accuses you and he condemns you. To what end? What, why? What, what is his objective? I think his primary objective is this: It's to keep people who don't know Jesus from ever coming to meet Jesus, and it's to get people who do know Jesus to put their trust and their focus and their faith in anything other than Jesus. And so friends, we need to be diligent and discerning in how we manage our, our thought life. How are you doing that? Are you doing that? Another interesting thing we see here in this passage is the way in which evil uh, takes more than it gives. Evil is greedy. Often, Satan will empower a person at the very same time that he is enslaving them, right? You can see that clearly in this passage. This guy, he had great power and strength, superhuman strength, in fact. He was was empowered by the evil that had gained access to his life, but that empowerment came at, at a high cost, right? After all, look at How he was living and where he was living and what he was doing. Evil was giving something to him, but it was also taking something from him too. He was growing in power, but at the same time, he was losing what matters most. He was losing himself. And you can also see that the stronger he got, the more power he gained, the more he hated himself, right? And the more he he harmed himself, right? Cutting himself and crying out, cutting himself with stones, the more The more evil gives to you, the more it takes away from you. And with this enemy, he is happy to to give to you in areas of your life that ultimately and eternally uh, do not matter, all the while at the very same time taking from you in areas, areas of your life that ultimately and eternally do matter. And this enemy, he does capture and control people in a variety of ways. He certainly does does so through temptation and through habitual patterns of sin that work and weave their way into our lives. But this enemy, he also captures and controls people even through the very hopes and dreams that we may have for our lives. You want that successful career? You want that relationship or that family? You want that perfect body? You want that status or reputation? You, You can have that. Just make it the most important thing to you. Put everything into it. Look to it for your your value and for your worth. Allow it to define you. And you can have those sorts of things. The truth is we enter into agreements like these quite often in our lives without even realizing it. And then as we give ourselves over to the things that we tell ourselves that we have to have most of all, we end up over time actually cooperating in our own in our own oppression. Did you ever notice that? The more you want something in your life, the more you go after that something with everything you got, the more control that something begins to have over you, and the more you begin to lose yourself in the process. And here's the saddest part of all. What you find as you live long enough in this life is that even as you achieve the very things that you you thought would fulfill you and complete you, it's never quite enough. You can't you can't quite seem to get there. Even though you may achieve in your life exactly what you thought you wanted and needed most, you find that underneath it all, there's always an undercurrent of anxiety and fear and insecurity. When you put your trust and your faith and your hope in anything other than Jesus, and if you're not careful, this enemy, he will lead you down a path that will eventually have you too crying out and cutting yourself emotionally speaking, wondering why you still feel the way you feel, even though you reach that goal and even though you accomplished that, that dream. Friends, be careful what you are seeking after most in your life. If you're elevating something above Jesus and seeking after something in your life more than you're seeking after Jesus, you're, you're dealing with the devil in one way or another. And he will deal with you if you're willing He will give to you, but never as much as he takes from you. So we've talked about this man in this passage and the evil that was very much mastering him. But then in verses 30 to 34, we see that everything changes for this man as he comes face to face with a a new master and a new reality. And what we're going to see happening in this scene reveals something important to us, I think, about the master's purpose and why, why Jesus came in the first place. You see, the Jewish people, they were, they were expecting a Savior to come for them at some point. God had promised through the prophets that he would be sending one. But many Jewish people, they had certain ideas, certain preconceived ideas about, about what the Savior would be coming to save them from. And so many Jewish people wanted Jesus to save them from, really, from their situation, from the Romans who had occupied their land and, and were oppressing their people. And it's just like so many people do today, too. The Jewish people back then were looking to Jesus, most of all, to save them from their circumstances and to help meet their their most immediate and pressing needs. But because they were so focused on their immediate needs, they were unable to see beyond them to the, the actual deeper needs that Jesus, in reality, came to address for them and for us. Jesus would make clear and all the other New Testament all the New Testament writers would make clear as well that the sort of rescue and the sort of freedom that the Jews needed most of all and that everyone else needs too was not from the Romans and not from any other human enemy. The apostle John would make it about as clear as it can get when it comes to why Jesus came in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 John says the reason not a reason but the reason, he says, that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And So you see the birth and the incarnation of Jesus, they were, they were an act of war. They were an invasion into enemy-held territory with the plan and the purpose to confront this enemy and to confound this enemy and to, to defeat this enemy in a way that, that nobody could see coming, especially this enemy himself. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing in this passage and throughout his ministry, confronting and confounding this enemy, liberating human souls from this enemy, and demonstrating his authority over this enemy, right? Because we also see in this passage not only something about the purpose of Jesus in taking down this enemy, but we see something too about his power to do so. Remember, Jesus, he speaks to this man. He says, tell me your name. And the guy says, I am, I am legion, for we are many. And as I mentioned, a legion is a military term uh, referring to a, a division of a Roman army, and that would be made up of several thousand men, but usually between six to eight thousand men. That's a legion. And so, of course, the implication here is that this guy was being harassed not by a demon or two, but by an army of them. And yet when this man who is controlled and consumed by a legion of demons gets into the presence of Jesus, it says he's down on, his, down on his knees. It says he fell before Jesus and they were begging him to let them be. And so Jesus, he deals with 6,000 demons the same way he deals with one. There's virtually no difference. He deals with a legion of demons the same way he dealt with the wind and the waves last week, right? He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves, Right? he doesn't call on a higher power, he speaks. He says, come out. And so he doesn't call on a higher power. He doesn't need to because he is the higher power. But practically speaking, what does this mean for us today? If we're going to be honest, at times it seems like evil has the upper hand in our world. At times it seems like evil is wreaking all sorts of havoc in this world and in our own lives. And so so why is that? If Jesus has this power over the demonic realm and the, his purpose is to destroy the works of the devil, why are, things, why are things still the way they are for us? A few years back, there was a story about a chef in southern China who was preparing a rare delicacy for the menu that evening. And the particular dish he was working on had as its main ingredient a highly poisonous Snake called an Indo-Chinese spitting cobra. And during his preparation, the chef took this live cobra and very carefully severed its head, cut its head off, and set it aside. And then he proceeded over the course of the next 20 or 30 minutes to cut and to prep the the body of this snake for the dish. And it's around then that, that diners in the restaurant would later say they heard frantic and loud screams coming from the kitchen, and there was much commotion in the restaurant that ensued, and the reason for all that commotion was that when the chef went to dispose of that severed snake head, that severed snakehead struck this man, clamped down on this man's hand, and killed this man nearly a half hour after that snake's head had been cut off from its body. And so sometimes it seems even a wounded and defeated enemy can still do much damage. And there's a sense in which the Bible tells us that's exactly the sort of enemy that we face as Christians. The Bible teaches that in an ultimate sense, Satan is conquered at this point. He is a defeated foe. We're told that Jesus delivered a decisive blow to Satan at the cross and through the resurrection. But that doesn't mean he's not still thrashing about doing as much damage as possible in the meantime. And this is precisely why the New Testament writers would continually remind us and do continually remind us that the battle is ongoing and we need to be aware, we need to be alert to the schemes of this defeated but still very dangerous enemy. Another interesting thing we see in this passage is how the is about the priority of this master, the priority of Jesus and how the how his priority is more internal than external. And we actually see this in this strange scene with the pigs. Jesus permits this legion of demons to go into these pigs, and when they do, the pigs go rushing off the cliff into the sea where they drown. And this was a very large herd of pigs. In in the parallel account of this story told in the Gospel of Mark, we're told how big this herd was. There were 2,000 pigs in this herd and they all went rushing off the cliff into the sea. So needless to say, somebody lost a lot of money that day. That was, those pigs would have represented a lot of wealth, and that's why we see some people were not happy with what happened here, and they asked Jesus to leave. But I think there's a sense in which Jesus may be showing us here that a single human life made in the image and likeness of God is, is worth it, Even this guy, right? This naked, seemingly crazy man who everybody had dismissed and written off is more valuable than any amount of money those pigs may have been worth. Some commentators also suggest that there's something else going on here beneath the surface, something, in fact, symbolic, deeply symbolic about what Jesus does here. Now, as I mentioned, the Jews were occupied by the Romans, right, during this time. They were very much being oppressed and controlled by the Romans. And so the Jews saw the Romans as as evil, as, as animals, really, who needed to be eradicated. They were the problem, and their destruction was the solution for many in the minds of many Jews. And so many Jews thought if only they could drive those ric- uh, wicked Romans, those unclean Roman pigs back into the Mediterranean Sea where they came from, all of their problems would be solved. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't show up to drive the legion of Romans back into the sea and to set the Jewish people free from them. No, Jesus, Jesus shows up instead to expose this far more serious enemy and to drive them back into the sea. And so by liberating this Gentile man in a Roman-controlled region in the way that he did, Jesus is saying to the Jewish people and to us too, I think, we need to be careful pointing to other people and other groups and thinking they're what's, what's wrong with the world. We need to be careful pointing to other people, other nations, other races, other religions, other political parties and thinking they're the evil and we're, we're the good. They're wrong, and we're right. They're the problem, and getting rid of them or silencing them is the solution. Jesus seems to be saying instead that the dividing line between good and evil is not out there, it's actually in here. It's not external, it's internal, and it cuts down the center of every human heart. So let's turn the corner here and let's look at the outcome of all of this in verses 35 to 39. We, we talked about the man. We talked about the master. Let's talk about the miracle that goes down in this man's life. We see, first of all, the people from all around were coming out to see what was going on. Word was spreading about this man because many people in this region, they would have uh, either known this guy or knew about this guy. They, they knew he was a lost cause. They, they knew it was out of control. But when they saw him there sitting at the feet of Jesus, he was calm. He was docile. He did not seem combative. He did not seem confused. Jesus calms the chaos in this man's life by driving this this enemy out from his life. This man who no one could bind, not even with chains, this guy who wandered the tombs naked, it says he was now seated with Jesus. And get this, he was... In his right mind, it says. So just as Jesus calmed the chaos of the storm last week, he calms a different type of chaos this week. He calms the chaos of this man's life by setting his soul free and giving this man his life back. Something else we also see here is that Jesus not only calms the chaos, he also covers the exposed. We see that this guy was not only seated and calm, but he was no longer naked, he was clothed as well. This whole time, the man was naked, right? Physically speaking, but he was naked, spiritually speaking, too, without a doubt. He had been exposed and exploited by this enemy. See, this enemy had stripped him of his sense of self. This old master had stripped him of his sense of identity. But Jesus, he clothes him, he covers him not only physically, but spiritually, too. But friends, this old master, he will rip you and and strip you. This old master, he will leave you feeling naked and exposed. He will leave you feeling anxious and inadequate. But this new master, he calms you. He covers you. He clothes you with a righteousness that's not your own. And Jesus does these things when you turn to him in faith for the first time. But he does these very things too. Each and every time you return to him in faith, every time after that. And this changes everything for this man, right? Because what we see after after we see Jesus calm this man and cover this man, we see Jesus commission this man. Jesus commissions those who he rescues and redeems. Look at verse 38 with me. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him. But he, he being Jesus, sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. So earlier, the demons controlling this man, they were begging Jesus to let them leave, remember? And now this man, calmed and covered by Jesus, is begging Jesus to let him stay. What a wonderful and powerful picture. Jesus changes this man's life, sets this man free, and then he says, go and talk about it. Tell tell them what happened. Tell people what happened. Tell them about me. Tell them how you were captive and now you're free. Go and expose this enemy. Expose his lies. Jesus sends this guy out as his first missionary in this place. And friends, our mission as Christians is indeed to talk about Jesus, to tell others what God has done for us in the gospel. But our mission is also to, to expose this enemy and to expose his, his lies. And this must happen. This, this needs to happen together, right? This is a corporate effort. It's a family effort in every way. After all, one of the warning signs we see with this man in the passage is how, how this enemy isolated him, right? He isolated this guy and then he picked him off and then he, then he took him down which reminds me of a, a scene that I watched once on the Animal Planet. In this particular show, there were five or six lions. They were, they were watching a, a herd of buffalo out, off in the distance. They were crouching down in some long grass, and they were watching. They were waiting. They were very patient. And there came a moment where one, one of the buffalo wasn't paying attention. He got careless and, and strayed a little ways away from the herd. And those lions, they took quick notice. They did not hesitate. They seized the moment. And before you know it, that buffalo was on the run, separated from its group, and it did not get very far at all. One lion grabbed a hold of the buffalo's back leg on one side. Another did the same on the other side. They just kind of dug in and held on until this buffalo slowed to a stop. And then one lion jumped on his back. Another came in from the side. It was it was a gruesome scene to watch. It wasn't easy to watch. But you know what struck me even more? What struck me most, even more than the attack itself, was that there were probably a hundred buffalo standing there watching this happen. Now, I don't know how smart buffalo are, but I'll tell you this, if that herd had decided that they weren't going to let this happen... And together they ran full speed in the direction of this attack. Those lions would not have had any, they would have had no choice but to abandon their efforts that day. Those lions would not have made a meal of that lone buffalo that day if the herd had stuck together and looked after its own. The one that got taken down was not even that far from the pack either. It just it strayed, it had strayed just enough for the for the enemy to take notice and for the enemy to take action. And so, friends, we, we have to stick together on this. We need to fight this enemy together. He is patient. He is opportunistic. He is watching. He is waiting. This enemy is real. The battle is real. And the reality of this battle, the fact that we're in a battle such as this, actually helps explain a lot of things, I think. It actually helps us understand why things are the way they are individually and systemically helps us understand why there do not seem to be any strictly human solutions to the many problems that plague us as individuals and the many problems that plague this world this battle we face i think helps to explain why so many of us and so many people in general battle daily with things like anxiety and depression with things like guilt and shame with things like anger and unforgiveness This battle we're in I think helps explain also why at times so many of us are controlled by various compulsions and addictions to chemicals, to to people, to, to pleasure. I believe addiction is one of the enemy's most effective tools. This battle we're in I think also helps explain why at times some of us struggle so much simply trying to read our Bibles and. Pray regularly and grow spiritually. The Apostle Paul says we need to be aware of this enemy's tactics and how he operates. He says don't be outwitted by him. Don't be ignorant of his designs. And the truth is every single one of those things I just mentioned, in order for any one of those things to really take root in your life requires fundamentally that just like Adam and Eve did, you believe one lie or another being whispered by this enemy. One lie or another about yourself, about God, or about the world around us. The apostle John in John chapter 8 verse 44 says Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, you know the voice, right? You've heard the voice. What lies has he been telling you lately? What doors has he been knocking on, looking for a way in? Because he will take as much ground as you're willing to give him. But in a very real way, as a Christian, it's important for us to understand, too, that he can only get in through a door that we ourselves open from from the inside, And I think this is why the consistent answer that we're given in the Bible on how to deal with this enemy and how to deal with this battle we face is to to be equipped, to train ourselves, to equip ourselves to to see his lies for what they are. And the very best way to recognize his lies for what they are is by knowing what is true, right? By knowing the truth and by having it dwelling richly in our hearts. This is why we... Study the scriptures in this way on this day, corporately speaking. This is why we open up our Bibles together regularly in missional communities, exploring God's truths together and exposing together the ways this enemy may be seeking to undermine those truths and those promises in our lives. This is also why we meet in smaller groups, same-gender DNA groups, where we can be open and accountable, where we can help one another expose Blind spots that this enemy may be seeking to exploit. Friends, the bottom line, we do this together. We need to stick together. We need to stand together. We need to fight this enemy together. And what Jesus did for this man, he has done in one way or another for each one of us, right? And he wants to continue doing that for each one of us too as we live our lives by faith. He wants us to experience freedom from the bondage and the harassment of this enemy. He wants us to recognize and resist this enemy's schemes. And so as we wrap up our time together, where do you need to be doing that in your own life? What doors do you need to close? What ground do you need to take back? What lies have you been believing that you instead need to expose and extinguish let's pray together Jesus thank you for the ways that you address our deepest needs and defeat our most dangerous enemies thank you for reminding us today of the battle we face that this enemy is patient and persistent and we must never grow complacent God, would you empower us as your people to resist this enemy together? Help us, God, to see through his schemes and his snares. Help us to stand squarely on the truth that you've revealed to us and to believe it, to trust you, to trust your promises. God, would you give us grace to do that now in Jesus' name? Amen.